Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello! And welcome back to the Slate Money Swag Special, where we talk about all of these amazing asset classes that don't cash flow and whether any of them make any sense. Last week, we talked to Julia Halperin about the art market and decided that art as an asset class doesn't make a lot of sense. And we concluded after that one that just about anything would probably make more sense than art, with the possible exception of cryptocurrency. So now mm. we are going to talk about cryptocurrency. I am Felix Salmon of Axios, but I am joined by Nathaniel Popper of The New York Times. Nat, how are you doing? I'm doing well. We started right off with the with the understanding that what we're about to talk about is potentially the least significant uh, financial thing, even less significant than the art market. That's a, I think that's a good starting place. I'm feeling good going into this. <laughs> I mean, I, it, it seems to be significant. There's a huge amount of money pouring into it. If you compare, I would be interested in this. How much, um, like actual hard cash dollars of people investing in mm. crypto every year compared to like how many hard cash dollars are people spending on art every year which one do you think is bigger i think art is probably uh six billion ish oh six billion ish yeah uh, yeah crypto's easily got that beat i mean it, it's it's confusing and actually it's interesting how little that question is asked i mean you know what people tend to focus on is the price of a bitcoin or an ether token you know eight thousand dollars nine thousand dollars and then they tend to focus on like if you extrapolate from that the value of all outstanding tokens you know you can see that it's uh i think we're around 100 billion today but it's actually hard to tell how much new cash is floating into it because a lot of the trading that you see out there is just people trading Ether for Bitcoin or, you know, many others, XRP, Dash, Monero on down the line. And so it can be hard to tell how much money is actually going into this market, but $6 billion easily. And there's two different ways that money is going into it, right? There's people just literally taking their dollars and use, using them to buy Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies. And then there's people taking their dollars and using them to buy equity stakes in crypto-based, blockchain-based companies. So Andreessen Horowitz has just raised a massive new crypto fund, and there are lots of others. And between those two, it's what would you say, tens of billions a year going into the space? Yeah, I mean, it, I, I do remember somebody did this math once. And and again, it's sort of surprisingly hard to get. But yeah, I mean, you know, you have to remember that a lot of people using this, I think, you know, not, not as many as was expected at the beginning, but a lot of people using this are using it to get money out of this or that country. I mean, it is uh, a really great, 
medium for money laundering. And so, you know, between China and Venezuela and Russia and places with strict capital controls where people are trying to evade taxes, you know, those those numbers are obviously very hard to track. But I think you could easily say that's in the billions. So basically, just to be clear about this, if I'm a Chinese person with a lot of money and I'm worried that all of that money could get confiscated by the Chinese government at any moment for any reason, then what I do is I use my renminbi to buy a bunch of Bitcoin and then I can sell my Bitcoin for dollars. And hey, presto, I have a whole bunch of dollars in the United States that are outside of the reach of the Chinese government. Exactly. Although you're probably not selling it in the United States because the United States is probably going to notice that. But um, you're probably selling it in Singapore or the Virgin Islands or the Bahamas and, you know, dealing with some dodgy Bitcoin exchange that won't uh, won't report that back to the Chinese government, won't worry about the tax consequences of it. But the but the amount of time that my money is tied up in Bitcoin in that sense is going to be small, right? I have no incentive really to just keep my money in Bitcoin. My incentive is to use Bitcoin as a mechanism to basically convert my renminbi to some other hard currency. Yeah. I mean, you would think that was the incentive if people didn't care at all about Bitcoin. If their only interest was in sort of laundering money, evading taxes, that would be the pattern. But I think what you've seen over time and why part of the reason that Bitcoin has gained in value is that you then have this kind of mixed motivation, which is, you know, I want to get my money out of China, but also this thing does seem like it keeps going up at random times. And so maybe I'll keep some amount of my laundered proceeds sitting there in Bitcoin and hope that it goes up. Yeah, that's like the lottery ticket thing that we talked about in the art market too. If you buy a whole bunch of paintings, then there is a chance that suddenly like one of them will become worth a lot more than you paid for it. And similarly, if you buy a bunch of Bitcoin, you can convert some of them back to dollars or euros or something nice and solid like that. But you can also keep some as a lottery ticket because there is a chance that you will wake up in the morning and it'll be worth 10 times more than you paid for it. it yes. I mean, I think this is, you know, where this is where we quickly start to approach this question of what is it? Because the lottery ticket metaphor is a reasonable one. And I think that is actually what's driving a lot of people, this notion. I mean, it's just a sort of global gambling market. But the other metaphor that's out there probably more commonly used is this like digital gold metaphor and this idea that it is something that is a store of value that may actually be more reliable than your local currency. And I mean, in fact, to date, that's only true if your local currency is the Venezuelan Bolivar, probably. And even then, it may not be more reliable than the Venezuelan Bolivar. But there is this notion that you know, just as people escaping China after the communist revolution would, you know, sew gold into their clothes as they were leaving here, you know, this is the new goal. This is the new way to get out of your country and take your assets with you. And there is some notion that it will maintain its value because, you know, there's only 21 million Bitcoin and, you know, it's this ultra secure system where, you know, no one has ever managed to create 
more than those 21 million. And so it's the scarce supply like gold. And so you have those these competing metaphors of, of digital gold and right. the lottery ticket. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. We're going to talk much more about gold in its own segment on this podcast, but to take that metaphor seriously, one thing that we were talking about ah, is that there's really no financial out advisors out there on planet Earth who are going up to people and saying, you should really have some percentage of your total net worth in art because that's a good hedge against blah, blah, blah. Like, mm -hmm. on the other hand, there are quite a lot of financial advisors out there. Yeah. By no means all of them, but like a, a sizable minority of financial advisors out there who do say that there should be some kind of allocation to gold. And that, you know, if you have a, decently balanced portfolio, it's going to be mostly stocks and bonds and maybe hedge funds and that kind of stuff. But they will put, I don't know, three, five percent in gold. Some of them will. Do you know, have you ever come across any sort of reputable financial advisors, you know, wealth management at Credit Suisse or something like that, who are beginning to say, you should have a certain asset allocation to crypto. Yeah. I, I actually thought when you were starting to say that, that you were not going to be talking about gold, but that you were going to be talking about crypto because, uh, I mean, I was just looking at a note earlier from Morgan Stanley where they're saying like, this is a reasonable, you know, Morgan Stanley, which is like, I don't know, the classiest of the, the wealth advisors, but certainly advising a lot of like smart, rich people and saying that this is a reasonable place to start looking at, you know, allocating some portion of your portfolio. I mean, I think, you know, it's still tiny. It's 1%, 2%, if that. But yes, you are, you are definitely starting to see that. I mean, obviously, Goldman Sachs has set up sort of the beginning of crypto trading desks. And, you know, the reason they're doing that, because they say clients want this and we think it's reasonable that they want this and we if they want it we want to help them get it um i mean so so i mean this is all yeah there's all there's very self-serving but <laughs> and again like in the art segment i was like well you can make money in the art market it's called being a dealer you know you're buying and selling and i think it's quite obvious in a volatile market like crypto that if you're a good trader and you're nimble and you can buy and sell and you can see what the flows are looking like and you get lucky, you can make money trading crypto. And I can totally understand how Goldman Sachs would like make money trading cryptocurrency. What I'm more interested in is just as a buy and hold investment for the wealthy clients yeah. of Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, they're now coming out and saying, never mind the trading of it you can actually make money just, or you should have some kind of allocation of just a bunch of cryptocurrency sitting in your account alongside your stocks and bonds because it makes sense for diversification purposes or something like that. Yes, you are, you are very much getting exactly that. And I, I mean, just to, on the trading point, 
you know, I think this is something you have talked about in the past, but I mean, there's insane opportunities to make money in trading this because it's such an immature market. And whenever you have immature markets with strange infrastructure, there is an opportunity for people, you know, kind of programmers to get in there and see those weird inconsistencies and see where there's money to be made. And so, you know, you've just seen people from every high class hedge fund, you know, Bridgewater, all the big trading funds, Renaissance, all the people who used to do high frequency trading. And it's really hard to make money trading stocks in that way now. Um, You know, it used to be that used to be a good way to make money. But now crypto is where the smart people are trading just because I, I mean, to put it to put it in the simplest terms, there's a lot of dumb money. And there's just a lot of weird things that you can understand and arbitrage and make money. So that's, so, that's so tell the me trading about, side. So tell me about the dumb money. Who's the dumb money? And are they actually dumb to be in this market? Well, so when you look at the, the people who own crypto and other asset classes, you know, most asset classes are dominated the ownership is dominated by institutional investors. So when you trade in the stock markets, the bond markets, you are going up against people with a lot of information and resources to understand how things are trading. Crypto, you know, among asset classes, if you consider it an asset class, is like, I don't know, 80, 90% owned by individuals. And, you know, individuals just, you know, at the simplest level, they just don't have that much time. They don't have that much information about how the thing is actually traded. So put aside the question of like, is this valuable or not? Just when they're trading on a day to day basis, they don't really understand how their trade is being routed. Sure. But um, now, like, like, let's put this to one side. I'm not I'm not really interested in the people who are day trading Bitcoin. You know, I think let those people that they they know they're gambling, they know what they're doing, they've got their eyes open, they'll make money or they'll lose money and probably they're done money and they'll get picked off by by the more sophisticated counterparties on the other side of their trades. Let's not talk about trading this (laughs) because I think trading it is, is not an interesting subject quite so much as just owning it. Is there any value as an investor to owning it or is that too just being dumb money? Well, okay, you're smart to get right to the heart of the matter because that that is the question facing this whole project. I mean, that's the thing that people are ultimately taking bets on. And I think people tend to divide this into Bitcoin and then all the other coins. And, you know, I, I think... There's a sense with Bitcoin and and there's this sense at Goldman Sachs, for instance, they have pretty much just stuck to Bitcoin because there is a sense that after 11 years now, I think it's actually Bitcoin's 11th birthday today or right around now, that it has proven that it works at some basic level. You have this network with 21 million, uh, well, you know, on its way to having 21 million tokens on it. And it has proven in a very basic sense to be secure. People have not managed to counterfeit Bitcoins. People have not managed to change the basic ledger that says who owns Bitcoins. Obviously, there's a lot of security questions higher up the chain. But at some basic level, Bitcoin does what it says it does. And it is as scarce as 
it was promised it would be. And, you know, I think that in some ways this in this sense, it really dovetails with the conversation of gold and, and this question of like, well, what does that scarcity mean? Why is that valuable just to have something that is scarce? And, you know, with Bitcoin, there's a whole lot of other questions about like, could this be useful in other ways? You know, you have this ledger with 21 million coins moving around on it. Could that be useful to make payments, to do other kinds of financial transactions? And so far, it hasn't been. And so far, people basically say this is valuable because it's scarce and it's secure. And I think that's, you know, kind of the argument that now Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley will make. So that's that's Bitcoin. But then you have, you know, the the 7000 other coins that exist. And um, I think, you know, with each of those, you get into this debate where you come down to the question of like, is this thing has this thing proven that it can do what it set out to do or something that is useful to people? And I think very quickly when you get past Bitcoin, the proof that the thing will do what it says it will do at a very basic level, it's harder to establish that. So I don't understand entirely what you're saying here because because Bitcoin is (laughs) open source and everyone can see the mathematics behind it and everyone can use the exact same mathematics to create any number of other coins and it's exactly what they've done all of the other coins or not all of them but the vast majority of the other coins are similarly based on basically the exact same open source mathematics and mutatis mutandis if bitcoin is safe and secure and uncounterfeitable then doesn't that mean that all of the other ones are too that if all you're looking at is this idea that it can't be counterfeited and it has this scarcity value don't they all have that why why is bitcoin different in that sense well there are i guess two obvious ways one is that most of the other well the 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 most important is that most of the other coins have less computers backing them and when you have fewer computers backing you and, and and this you know gets into the the way computers back bitcoin is they mine bitcoin um, and they're trying to find new bitcoins but in doing that they're also securing bitcoin they're making it harder for somebody to come in and you know change the ledger and so you have you know the equivalent of i don't know where we are today but you know a thousand of the world's most powerful supercomputers working at securing bitcoin and most other coins just have a whole lot less than that which means they're just a whole lot less secure and it's a lot easier to change the rules for those other ones and that that's the other thing with bitcoin is that you now after 11 years have had an understanding that the rules are going to stay the same, that there are only going to be 21 million Bitcoins ever, and that the that the kind of programmers running it are distributed enough that they can't change that. There's no one authority who has a power to change that. And, you know, even when you move to the second most valuable coin, Ether, it is still run by a essentially a foundation and there's a there's a leader of it this guy Vitalik Buterin who has actually said 
we may want to change the number of ether that exist and we may want to change the rules and the rules may change and then you know the economics of the system may change and you know right there you throw a whole lot more uncertainty into um, the system so that that uncertainty does exist to a certain degree with Bitcoin. I mean, it is possible that you could get, you know, all the developers who are working on this open source uh, software could, you know, form a cartel and decide, you know what, tomorrow we want 42 million Bitcoins instead of 21. And they could try to do that. But there are the, the miners, the people with the computers out there are actually a different faction and they could just vote that down. And And what's happened with Bitcoin is that that, kind of those checks and balances have worked or they have worked to date and they and may not always a, work. And this is the <laughs> question which I have about Bitcoin or one of the many questions I have about Bitcoin. The reason why it's secure, exactly as you say, is because it has a huge amount of computing power backing it up. The reason it has a huge amount of computing power backing it up is because for all that running those computers is very expensive, it's still pays to mine bitcoin if you spend a huge amount of money running a computer and then it mines a bitcoin then you can sell that bitcoin for more money than it costs to mine it and you can make a profit so there's an economic incentive to mine bitcoin and as long as that economic incentive is there the system remains secure because it has all of these computers backing it up mm. what happens if the price of bitcoin falls significantly let's say it goes back down to you know, $300 a coin, something like that. And yeah. nearly all of the coins have been mined already. So the difficulty of mining a new coin is incredibly high. It is extremely expensive in terms of computing power to mine a new coin. But when you do mine that new coin, it's only worth 300 bucks, and you can't pay for your computing power that way. At that point, doesn't the whole system stop working? Well, we've actually, and this has happened before. The price of Bitcoin has fallen below the sort of commonly understood cost of what it costs to, to mine a new Bitcoin. So what happens when that happens? Computers drop out of the network. And um, then I mean, as computers drop out of the network, does that make the network less secure? It makes it proportionately less secure. So if we saw Bitcoin trading at a level below the cost to mine it for a long period of time, and it was quite far below the cost of mining a marginal Bitcoin, then at that point, the entire network would actually become pretty insecure. It would become more more insecure. I mean, you, you let's say it dropped to $300. I guess you just said, like, it, did, it was trading for a long time at $300. And there were, at that point, you know, many, many, uh, I don't know, dozens of supercomputers worth of uh, hashing power around the world kind of securing this. Even at $300, you're still going to get a lot of people who, you know, they already own the equipment. Maybe they're getting free electricity in China. And by the way, you know, a, a good proportion of miners are going to think at that point, oh, I'm getting these things on the cheap. This shouldn't this sh it shouldn't be at three hundred dollars. Now, they, they may be wrong about that. But, you know, but there isn't, are a it, lot isn't of miners, it cheaper for them to just go out and buy, buy them at the, that point, buy the bitcoins on the secondary market than it is to mine them? Not if 
they already have the machines, if they already bought the machines and they're getting free electricity. I mean, the main cost of mining Bitcoin is electricity. And so, yes, if you're paying for electricity and you're paying more than $300 and Bitcoin's at $300, you're going to stop doing it and you're going you're gonna to just buy Bitcoins if you're still a big believer. But there are a lot of people with weird agreements, uh, you know, the Venezuelan government where they've got a lot of excess oil that they haven't figured out what to do with, where government officials have come into large warehouses of of mining machines uh that you know maybe because they arrested the person who was mining them previously and you know so it's essentially free for them there's some good number of people for whom that's the case and and in any case i mean again i go back to the point that when it was bitcoin was 300 dollars, there was a lot of computing power dedicated to this it has to go down a lot to be less secure but i mean look at the at a fundamental level you're right you know if the value of Bitcoin goes down, people will be less invested in the system. It will become less secure. I mean, with Bitcoin, you are still making a bet. There's no question about that. But to come back to the art analogy, Julia was saying that basically if you spend less than half a million dollars on a work of art, that's not really an investment grade artwork it's it's something else it might be beautiful it might be you know it might go up in value it might go down in value but like it it's not really an investment and it seems to me that what you're saying is that if you buy any cryptocurrency that isn't bitcoin you know it's a gamble it might go up and might go down but in terms of investment grade crypto there's really just one game in town and that's bitcoin yeah, and and I would certainly be hesitant to say investment grade, even with Bitcoin. I mean, I, I do think, you know, I was talking with a friend about, you know, investing in a seed stage of a startup or, you know, series A of a startup. I think that Bitcoin is probably a more sure bet than I'm almost certain that it's a more sure bet than, you know, making an early investment in a startup. Because there's a 90% chance that investment will go to zero. Yeah. And and I, yeah, right. Maybe that's, that's the number. Like what's the chance that this will go to zero? And I think that there are a lot of investments that people make where there's a higher chance of it going to zero than Bitcoin. That, I don't know that, you know, investment grade, to me, means like something that a normal, reasonable person could anticipate will not go to zero. You know, I think for that, you know, you have the traditional asset classes. But yeah, so I think Bitcoin is is sort of one thing. And then you get into all the 7,000 other crypto assets, if you want to call it that, just coins, tokens that are out there. And of course, now, now you're starting to get talk of uh, obviously Libra with Facebook or uh, a Chinese cryptocurrency, which many people say shouldn't be called a cryptocurrency, but you know, it, it's something that would be sort of use some of the principles of Bitcoin to create some sort of sovereign currency. But that's that's obviously going to be a very different category if it comes into being. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, I'm Emmy Harper. 
On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. So, okay, so let's stick with Bitcoin. And I'm, I'm kind of glad that we've managed to narrow this down to Bitcoin, because if crypto <laughs> as an asset class was an asset class, then that would be super hard to invest in. There's no like easy way to buy a basket of crypto, whereas it's actually there is. now. In- that's I mean, that's it, not true. It's much I, easier to buy a Bitcoin. I can open up my Square Cash app and just press a button and I've bought Bitcoin. It's the easiest thing in the world. Yes. So now that we know that I can, <laughs> the next question is like, should I, as someone with, let's say, investable assets, as someone who has some amount of money in stocks and bonds does it make sense as you were saying like for for the morgan stanley brokers might be saying does it make sense for maybe one percent of my investable assets to be held in bitcoin for some reason uh, uh that is a that is a question i have always shied away from but I'll, i will say this about it which is you know in some ways a special thing about bitcoin but in some ways obviously a very dangerous thing about bitcoin which is that there are all of these kind of early stage technologies that ordinary people can't buy. There's just this whole segment of the investing universe that is shut off, that is you know not available to ordinary people. And there's obviously good reason for that. You know, the SEC has decided that ordinary people shouldn't be able to buy it. It's just too risky. And if they can buy it, they'll buy too much of it and put too much confidence in it. But, you know, the end result of that for Americans is like you can't really invest in startups. You can't. uh, I mean, that's that's sort of the biggest category that I think of. But there there are many others. And here is an asset class that's sort of an early stage technology that you can invest in. And I, I think, you know, if you're somebody who as long as you understand that it's an early stage technology and you don't get access to most early stage technologies, if, you know, early stage technology is something that you want to have some bet in. I mean, it's it's not the same as investing in a startup with a business plan. You have to understand that. But, you know, the fact that it's available, it's again, that's what's made it dangerous. That's why people have lost money. But, you know, they're are some significant number of people who have made millions of dollars, in some case, billions of dollars, who were not, you know, would not have otherwise had access to this kind of bet. Now, I mean, again, you could just say like, so just go out and place a really large bet in, you know, in a, in a, in a sports book. But I think this is a a slightly more sure thing than that. And, you know, it's not a one-time event, you can hold it. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know which way that logic cuts, but it does feel like you are given access to something that you don't otherwise get access to as an investor. So tell me about this idea that Bitcoin is an early stage technology, because I hear this quite a lot. And, you know, when it was two or three years old, I kind of bought into it. And now that it's 11 years old, I'm like, 11 is not 
young, even by the standards of technology companies. There's, you know, yeah. a lot of big technology companies which are much younger than that, which don't feel early stage. People talk a lot about like the early days of the internet, but how old will Bitcoin need to be before people stop thinking of it as being early stage? My guess is when it can do something other than just sit there in your account and go up and down. I mean, it just, it, it does hold out some promise that it can do something more than that. And certainly this whole other universe of coins holds out that promise even more. You know, there are all these coins that have these very specific architectures that are designed to make it easy to do, you know, weird AI computations or to have, you know, total privacy. And, um, you know, those coins are where you can really say almost none of them have delivered. I mean, essentially none of them have delivered on their promises. Maybe maybe the privacy coins have, you know, there's coins like Monero and Zcash where they just want to be like Bitcoin, but but reveal no information about the people doing the transactions. And in some sense, those maybe are working. And you hear a lot of people saying that's sort of the natural next place to go, particularly as it becomes clear that Bitcoin is not that anonymous. Um, you know, as it becomes clear that you will get arrested if you buy child porn or drugs with Bitcoin. People, you know, it's very reasonable to think that they're going to look to some of these privacy coins. And so I'm expanding the category here a little bit. But there is a whole universe of coins that make promises about what they'll do. And most of them have not delivered on those promises. Bitcoin, you know, has made promises that can do other things. Originally, it was supposed to be digital cash. It was supposed to be a way you could, you know, buy things online without paying transaction fees to Visa. And that hasn't worked. It's actually now clear that it's more expensive to buy things online than it is with Visa. And it comes with lots of other risks. And so that hasn't worked. But that's, you know, one of the things it potentially could do. And you, I, I, this is sort of a strange thing that's about to happen. The New York Stock Exchange or the company that owns the New York Stock Exchange has this, has gotten into Bitcoin in a big way. And they've said next year, they are going to start working with Starbucks to make it possible to use crypto to buy things at Starbucks. This has been tried before and it hasn't worked, but it hasn't been tried before by anybody as big as Starbucks or as uh, the New York Stock Exchange as a sort of back end to that system. So, you know, again, you know, Bitcoin originally promised it was going to be digital cash. Maybe it can be more than digital gold. Maybe it can do more than just sit there. Maybe it, that that ledger can do other useful things. And I think when you get some sign that it can do other useful things, it starts to not become early stage anymore. And, you know, so far, most people, I think even Bitcoin believers recognize that it's not yet doing most of what it could do or has has promised to do. So let me let me finish with a question about a bet that I have with Ben Horowitz, the venture capitalist in California. 
I feel like you've got like seven outstanding bets on price of Bitcoin. I, I only Don't have you? one now. Most of most of them, I'm actually batting a thousand on my Bitcoin bets. I've I've done very well in terms you, of winning all of my Bitcoin bets so far. How did that? I mean, you've obviously you've you've been the guy betting against Bitcoin for a long time. Well, actually, weirdly not. Like I had one no? bet with Patrick Collison of Stripe, where I was short volatility. He was like. In Bitcoin in a year is going to be worth like either less than half more stable. L- less than half of what it is now or more than double. And I took the other side of that bet and I won. Sometimes like I don't know. Okay. Like yeah, sometimes well, I'm not I'm not I'm not a complete Bitcoin bear. I never have been. I've never been this is going to zero and you should, you know, short it and make lots of money that way. Um if you could short it, which is very hard. But, but easier now than it was. It's easier now than it was. You have futures contracts. But yeah, my bet with Ben Horowitz is not about the value of Bitcoin. It's about use and adopt, you know, whether people are yeah. going to be using crypto. But the question that I want to put to you is I have stakes for this bet. And the loser of the bet is going to have to pay the winner one ether and a hundred year old bottle of Madeira wine. So my question to you is, in terms of an investment, if you're going to hold something for a five-year time horizon, obviously owning stocks or bonds is something that people own for five years quite happily, and they think it makes sense as an investment over a five-year time horizon. But let's move back into this kind of swag world, and I give you the choice. You can have $100 worth of Bitcoin, you can have $100 worth of Ether, or you can have $100 worth of wine, like 100-year-old Madeira wine, which is not going to go bad in, in five years. Like, as an investment, which one would you feel was the safest? Or let me just add one more, $100 worth of gold. Hmm. And I don't have to put any money on the line here, so this is this is much safer for me. And I, But I do, I, I can't help but hear the voice of ben horowitz when he had to acknowledge defeat on that bet on planet money and it was such a sad dejected sound from a the, man the, who the sad dejected so, billionaire who made oh, who made way more money on bitcoin than i will ever make yeah but somehow that moment i mean he just he was he was just so quiet he had so few words to, to offer um but i mean i think you know Ether is certainly the most speculative of those because with Ether, you're really betting that something is going to happen, you know, that they're going to figure out how to make that system work in a way that it really has not to date. You know, with Bitcoin, you're to some degree betting that it's going to continue doing what it is doing, at least, and that there will continue to be a demand for that. And the Madeira wine, I mean... I feel like, you know, I, I just don't know the the chemistry of that. It feels like it could go bad if you like put it in the wrong cabinet or something. I mean, that's true with Bitcoin too. If you like put it in the wrong wallet and then you lose your private key, but I don't know, just too much sunlight. I mean, if only because I have a greater sense of what it will take for Bitcoin to last five years than I do for what it would take for that bottle of wine. Okay. And then I guess we have gold as well, which does feel rather antiquated at this point and you know it it is i mean bitcoin does to some degree just feel like a piece of gold that you can do a couple more things with and that you can reasonably hold yourself 
without having to put it under the mattress. So I, I would say in that among those four, I would probably take Bitcoin. But certainly, I, I mean, it's it's it. This is a very strange position for me to be in to be the one who is arguing this whole conversation to arguing for Bitcoin, because I am certainly usually these days on the other side of this. But I think I am, you know, maybe relative to you or or maybe relative to a lot of people, you know, it doesn't work in a lot of ways, but it does do something basic that it has continued to do that people didn't think it would continue doing. And so I think among those four, you know, I think it would become a harder bet when you, you know, you throw some other stocks, real estate commodity in there, but with wine and gold and ether, I, I think I feel pretty safe. Amazing. What would you okay. take? I, I would. You take the would, wine. Well, I mean, I, the great thing about the wine is that, like, you know how you're talking about how maybe it. one day there will be a use for the Bitcoin. There is always a use for the wine. You like, if it ever falls in value, you can always just drink it. But, but what if you my, put it in as, the as wrong, an investment? As an investment. What if, you're, what if there's a blackout and you put it in the wrong? Your refrigerator went. You it's know, true. You, you it's accidentally true. some sunlight got in there. It's going to be okay. It could be cooked. Yeah, it could be. A, it could okay. be a bad investment. So no, I think the safest investment to answer my own question, I think, is gold. We have thousands of years of history of gold. You know, obviously fluctuating in value quite a lot, but ultimately retaining a certain level of value across all manner of different types of economic background. Yeah. And so the idea that gold is what did you say antiquated i'm like yeah that's actually that's a that's feature not a, not a bug yeah. like that's actually what i like about gold is that it's antiquated that it, it is shown in you know from antiquity onwards that it has value for reasons that might not make a lot of conceptual sense but yeah. that, that have proved themselves in practice there's a whole lot more consensus there's remains a whole lot more consensus there than there is on any of the other three. So do you, and can I ask you, do you own any of those four? I I have bottles a of bottle wine, of but they're certainly not for investment. Not I, I have never sold a bottle of wine and I don't think I ever will. I think one of the reasons I'm doing this entire like mini series is to try and help myself get my brain around the question of whether any of these things that don't have any cash flow attached really are asset classes, a really something that people should invest in. And my priors, just to be open about this, coming into the series is kind of not really, but mm -hmm. I'm open to having my mind changed. And I am thankful that you came in and tried to make well, the case that Bitcoin is better than gold because it's an important voice to hear. I would say that obviously for investors, the question is not which of these things should they only own. For most investors, the question is, what is the mix that they want between these things. And I, I'm not I'm not saying that kind of logic leads you to thinking that you want Bitcoin to be part of that mix. But you know, if you have some gold and you like that idea, I think a slightly more speculative version of it, and obviously I'm now kind of uh, conceding your point here, is that you know, a more speculative version of that is maybe a reasonable thing to have a smaller allocation to. But I'd be hard-pressed to argue that. So there you go. That's a good rule of thumb in terms of how much Bitcoin should you own as part of your portfolio is like 10% of whatever you have in gold. If you don't have anything in gold, then you probably shouldn't have anything in Bitcoin. If you do have some gold, then maybe throw some money into Bitcoin. That'll be your rule. I'm not going to sign on to that, but uh, I like I like the idea. <laughs>
Nathaniel Popper, thank you very much for coming on Slate Money. And let's have you in the Brooklyn studio next time you're in New York. Oh, once you move out to Oakland, there's no going back to the Brooklyn studio. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.